Welcome to Shallow Speaks. Isa, come, come here, my relatives. Today we're going to be talking about the Holocaust Remembrance. A book that I would absolutely recommend is called Ordinary Men, and it is by Christopher Browning. He is a lead expert testimony witness at Holocaust trials, particularly pertaining to Holocaust denial efforts. Uh, this book is about how Nazis went from being humans that just do ordinary day life jobs to being enlisted in the military, going through training, and at the end of their training, shooting pregnant women in the back of the head. And what the book raises the question of, and I think contributes to answer, is what makes you different, or any of us different, from Nazis, from getting to that point. It's clear where we are now, we're different, we're not committing genocide, but to get to that point, it raises a major question. So today I want to talk about the connection between Native Americans and Jews in the state of genocide, uh, the influence that Native American genocide had on uh, Adolf Hitler and the execution of millions of Jews under the Nazi regime, and very important analyzing what exactly contributes to somebody becoming a Nazi and how to avoid that in yourself. Because as I think you'll find, there's a lots of shared common characteristics between humans and very fascist behavior. So what I want to first say is that Hitler writes in the book Mein Kampf that he sees the United States as a land empire. In order to obtain his goals of having a unified Germany that is a major world power, uh, to achieve his desires of what he sees he's entitled to, uh, a mega city, a mega, uh, a mega race of people, an organization that he leads, that dominates the world, he has to acquire land. And what he sees colonists doing from Europe, mainly Great Britain, is the ethnic cleansing of Native Americans. He studied everything from that to the Civil War, uh, different efforts that Americans took to execute tribes. Especially, he particularly implements something called, uh, well, that's basically the replica of blood quantum. Except how he uses blood quantum is to verify whether or not somebody should be sent to a gas chamber or be worked to death. Well, what makes someone like a Nazi, what you see particular behavior is that's outlined in the book by Christopher Browning is that they would not leave, though they were given the opportunity at any time by their commander, that they could leave at any time, that they would not do it because they felt that it was unfair to their comrades by self-report uh, to leave, quote, the dirty work to them. They were left uh, physically harmed and emotionally damaged by the acts they were committing themselves, at least according to their own accounts. The 101, this is the execution squadron uh, in 1939 Poland, would go into Poland after the invasion of Poland, which took place through about a month by both Germany and the Soviet Union, which is an actual long time for to hold off against two armies coming against you at one 
time. Uh, France surrendered in a week, uh, being taken over by Nazis. So, after this horrifying fight to the death, these squadrons would come in, and they would round up 15,000 Jews and execute them. This was part of what was called the Final Solution. And they would be going around in the cold. This was They were not really well equipped for the weather conditions. They would get physically sick. And I imagine sometimes die themselves, being soldiers that were doing this. Because they, according to them, believed that it would be wrong to abandon their own comrades. But something that you'll see is that people are often not very brave. The people that would stand up to Nazis were extremely brave and put their own lives and the family's lives on the line to protect Jews from being executed. Statistically, it's not very likely that if we were there that we would be those people. But one of the things that I think about is the aspect of bravery and doing what's right, being willing to speak up in the face of very confrontational acts, the behavior and thought process of those around you being starkly opposed to what you believe. The idea of even expressing that, let alone demonstrating, or, or that's, that's horrifying to many people. I think it's the number one fear is public speaking. If that's the t testament to like how we feel about just talking about our own feelings, then how are we going to go about leaving from the social group, which we often would, which we absolutely would need to do uh, in the situation of Nazis? The formation of hatred, racial hatred, and the Holocaust, I have contributed to two things. And I've been arguing with myself uh, in my head of, of what takes more, what's more prominent. Is it the aspect of self-victimization or is it the idea of entitlement? And what I've come to terms in understanding for myself is that entitlement is a prerequisite in seeing yourself as a victim. So entitlement is one of the most damning things that you can have that puts you at risk of being a monster. The aspect of abusive behavior, as uh, documented in the book Why Does He Do That?, which is about uh, abuse, physical abuse towards women, uh, physical and emotional, like why, why do men ever hit women, is this notion that the perpetrators of physical assault, of harm, believe themselves to be entitled. And often with being entitled, do people see themselves being that they have been wronged. So what the Germans believed that went along with the Nazi protocol was that they had been wronged by the Jews, that they had somehow been been tricked out of 
getting a good deal with the Paris Treaty at the end of World War One, where they had to pay back a massive debt that wouldn't be paid back until what would be, I believe, about 2010. Just this massive debt. It was blamed on Jews because Jews were in sometimes high positions of power uh, economically, which had been established over generations of trades passed down of banking and being lawyers. It is in the Jewish faith that you read uh, the Torah, that you learn about Jewish law, that you learn about certain practices of money. This is also in the Talmud. It is a way of living life. It is a way that's sort of a guidebook to being successful and carrying on that legacy. And so even in the face of persecution, in the face of anti-Semitism, which had been going on for thousands of years, through the caliphate, through the enlightenment periods of what would lead to racial anti-Semitism, notion of practicing law and knowing how to use money accordingly. It makes sense then if you're learning about money and law from the age of a child to when you have your bar mitzvah or your bar mitzvah, which I believe is 12 or 13, the age of becoming an adult, and you keep learning about the law your entire life. It makes sense that you would grow up to be a lawyer or running a bank. And there was exceptions uh, to certain things that Catholics saw themselves as uh, permissible for doing. For example, Catholics were expected to be generous with their money and to pay tithes. And they were not, it was very taboo for the idea to be Catholic and running a bank. In fact, I'm pretty sure in most cases it was. Isa, come, snick, Come here, my relatives. Welcome to Shadow Speaks. Today we will be talking about the remembrance of the Holocaust. And in particular, we'll be talking about correlation between Native American genocide and the connection the Native Americans have with Jews and survivors of genocide and descendants of genocide. Particularly, I wanted to take this time actually uh, to talk about taking into accountability the fact that our ancestors, many of our ancestors have contributed to genocide uh, in being Americans and taking into consideration that even more of them just stood by knowing that it was happened and watched. And one of the main things that people say when they learn from history is we never want it to repeat itself. And we learn from it, so we act differently. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we have seen history and it has repeated itself a number of times and it has sparked influence in we would say is in the wrong direction in a direction towards harm 
from the discriminatory views of the Greeks, of the Romans, towards Jews, spanning thousands of years, to the colonists that would go to occupy and take land from the Americas in invasion and the indigenous people. This would go to, on to expire the Nazi regime. Hitler took inspiration from Americans in the removal of land and the ethnic cleansing of indigenous people. And by removal of land, I mean clearing indigenous people off their own home territory. So, what I want to point out is in Adolf Hitler's autobiography, or his own biography, I don't remember what, how it goes, but uh, Mein Kampf notes that Hitler wanted to establish a land empire. And he drew something to learn from, from the United States, on how he would go about doing this. The salute that people would give to hail the Fuhrer was previously used by the Ku Klux Klan that was established following the Civil War. And then, as we know, Nazi ideology spread not only to America, but within the United States military, and continues to this day. While Germany bans the Nazi flag, references to Nazism and inciting violence in the name of Nazis, they are usually able to wave the flag of the Confederacy. So in protests, you will see the Confederate flag waved by Germans that are part of the alt-right uh, extremists. Then, have we, as we have seen on January 6th, we have seen Confederate flags, and we have seen inspiration from the Holocaust, where Camp Auschwitz was printed on the sweatshirt of one of the protesters or rioters, as I think it would be more fitting to put. How do we learn from these acts of terror? What we want to believe is that... What we do need to figure out is what is the difference that takes somebody from being a loving member of a diverse community to one of hatred and disgust. Or, if not hatred and disgust, one that is willing to engage in monstrous acts in order to meet an end. Police Battalion 101. As documented in a book that I would suggest to everyone called Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland was accordingly made up of approximately 500 men who were police reservists of lower and middle class in Hamburg, Germany. 
some of whom were friendly with Jews before the war, would go on with no combat training, going from being friendly pals with their Jewish neighbors to shooting naked pregnant women in the back of the head after gathering them up in the hundreds, going from village to village in systemic, seemingly machine-like execution. There are no real words that can demonstrate the brutality of the Holocaust. But from what we do have in writing, in pictures, in videotapes, it speaks volumes. What I think I want to point out is absolutely true is that these were ordinary men in the sense that they did not all have resentment and hatred towards the Jewish population, and yet they would engage in the most vile, horrific behavior that one could possibly imagine. So when I look at my research of what makes someone a bigoted and hateful person that would commit a hate crime, I see certain characteristics uh, from a paper I wrote about domestic violence towards women. One is a sense of entitlement, and two is victimization, which serves as a grounding, uh, as you might want to point out, uh, a stake for the tent that is entitlement. It secures in place a sense of justification for the actions because it is in itself declaring with one's entitlement of hateful actions that I have been wronged, that I deserve this, that I am worthy of more, and this person is getting in the way, and so they must be done away with. What is known is, in particular though, that contrary to what many people say hatred is formed by, namely fear, has often been rooted in disgust. This can be contrasted from North America's genocide, the South America's genocide of indigenous populations, in a stated name of sterilization and sanitization. The sterilization of women was to ensure that the race would not continue, that that generation would die out in not being able to conceive more children. Hitler was documented as being an extreme germaphobe. He wanted everything sterile and sanitized. He did not display fear of Jews in the sense of running away. He displayed disgust. Disgust is the feeling of wanting something destroyed, wanting something eradicated, like a virus, like germs on a counter being wiped down with alcohol wipes like the execution of rats that are under your house. He did not only want separation, he wanted termination. And with the neuroscience of disgust, you will see activity in the insular cortex that is particularly correlated more so than any other region in the brain. And so what I find and hypothesize is that the greatest way to know of a connection between signs of hatred and bigotry in an individual would be an electromagnetic measure of neural activity in this region when associated with the hate groups, uh, with the subject of 
the group that is in, hated in question. What I would not suggest in uh, taking into accountability is the implicit bias testing, as it has a 60% uh, chance of having replicated results. And if you take a test, you want it to be replicated and being able to be repeated, hopefully to as close to perfect as possible. But this is very difficult with psychology because there are so many factors put into play. So while electromagnetic measures, uh, the measures of neurons, is very capable of being done, there's a certain ease to implicit bias testing that seems to imply that someone has racial tendencies despite being very little better than a coin flip in determination if there's actually something there that can be replicated. So what does that leave us with then if we're going to measure our own personal bias? I think it is to watch our step. It is to take into question when we feel a sense of victimization or entitlement towards a certain group. It is to check our sense of disgust when we are exposed to a group of people that we do not like. And I think it is to know our history and see repetition rather than to see a quote that you can copy and paste. I see a lot of people that can drive loads of source of information from history texts and not what morals you can get out of them. If that is stated, it's, well, you don't want it to happen again. Okay, but how are you keeping it from happening again? What are you seeing repeated in your own history, in your own behavior that can be associated with the bad guy? Nobody wants to see themselves as potentially being the bad guy. But in being able to envision in ourselves the harm that we are capable of doing, we can then go forth to run from it. If we can see the fact that people without a lack of empathy, people with empathy present in their own lives towards their children and their families, are capable of committing systemic genocide in the span of a year or a month, then what is there really that makes us so different and so prepared? If you're friends with diverse groups of people, uh, you would want to think that, well, because you have exposure to the outside group, because this person is your friend, you're not going to kill their community. But history has demonstrated that is not always the case. So one thing I want to take into consideration is the impact of social behavior. In this book, Ordinary Men, what is quoted by the soldiers for the reason they don't leave, even when given the information by their superiors, that they are free to leave at any time, that they are not bound to this by any legal means. They will not be considered traitors or going AWOL if they leave their posts. They can go back home. Their response is overwhelmingly, though they don't like what they're doing, 
they feel worse about leaving it to somebody else. So they continued to engage in the behavior day after day, rounding up hundreds of people, tearing apart their homes, ripping them out of beds, killing the fathers, the mothers, the sisters, the brothers, the children, and would repeat the same thing, marching from village to village. I really want to point out that these people were psychologically traumatized by what they were doing, and yet they were willing to continue. Himmler writes that the commander of Reserve Police Battalion 101 was actually withdrawn because of his psychological torment that he experienced from the memories and the flashbacks of crimes he had committed himself. So these people felt guilt about what they were doing, extraordinary pain, not only emotional, psychological, but physical, physical pain, and yet they kept doing it. The Nazis knew this was problematic and was likely to lead in potential rebellion at some point. So what was done was to ease the psychological torment and the fitness for battle and combat by changing to auxiliary troops. These auxiliary troops would be made up of locals. So it turned from Germans of a foreign country going into Poland, killing Jews who they had interactions with outside of what they were doing before this time, uh, before the war, that they were friends with, some of them, uh, to going to auxiliary troops, which would be made up of local residents of that country who would then go on to shoot their own countrymen. They would kill them even when they were notified they are indispensable to the economy, that they are of extreme importance and extreme value, and commanders would halt orders when they are given orders that they needed to stop. However, oftentimes when this was the case, there would still be any missing from families because the execution took place so quickly. Thank you for your time listening to me and contributing to my own personal development. I appreciate each and every one of you listeners that are out there. I want to say a special thank you to Jacob for help with the environmental research. I want to thank Bree and Tim for their constant support from the very beginning. I would like to thank uh, Jacob Eby for working with my audio to make sure that it it's remastered and at a quality that it is. I want to thank Garrett, and I want to thank Paul Thomas, Zane Rubin, uh, and Joshua. Uh, each of you have been vital in having an important conversation. I intend to keep on doing this, so remember that you do absolutely make a difference. Remember to take lessons from history and actually apply them uh, to our own lives. And Know that even in the darkest of circumstances, you have potential and you have the ability to do great things. Find something to have faith in. Find people to love. <laughs>